I invite you to open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14, it's on page 892 in your pew Bible. That's one of my favorite hymns. Jesus pictures himself in John 10 as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The one who dies for us and rose for us lives to take care of us and to defend us and to lead us and to feed us and to guide us and to make sure that we arrive safely home. You know what Brother Noble prayed earlier too, or what Mike challenged also with our seniors, just about the importance of the local church and that beautiful picture presented in that hymn of the church as a flock that is led by their good shepherd. Uh, One of the quotes that I use in our membership class is from Charles Spurgeon who said, sheep love to go in flocks and so do God's people. And that's just a precious picture of the church. Earlier and just a few moments ago, Noble read from Psalm 133, behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. Oh, but how bad and bothersome it is when they don't. In his book, Great Church Fights, Leslie Flynn wrote a number of years ago, two chickens tied at the legs and thrown over a clothesline may be united, but they do not have unity. (laughs) Same can be said of some Christians who are united in the same local church. Chickens have been known to peck one another to death. And sometimes, if we're not careful, believers can do the same, pecking one another to the point where we kill our fellowship in Christ. Romans 14 was written to help us avoid that. Romans 14. For the last two chapters, the Apostle Paul has been describing in practical terms the quality of Christian love. Began in chapter 12, verse 9, where He says, let love be genuine. And then he goes on to to describe how such love expresses itself in an authentic, genuine, Christ-like way to our fellow believers, to non-Christians, to the governing authorities that God has placed over us. And and then at the end of chapter 13, uh, Paul says that such love fulfills the law because the law of Christ is the law of love. And he says that we must not delay in showing such love because the Lord could return at any time. Our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. And so we must make the most of the time we have left. Now in chapter 14, Paul continues this theme but kind of takes it in a slightly different direction. He's still on this theme of showing genuine love to one another But now he addresses practical concerns that every Christian faces, things that could interrupt that love, disrupt that love, even break down such love, be a hindrance to love. And here's the question he addresses. How do we get along, let alone love, people that we just don't agree with? Believers in the body of Christ. How do we avoid dividing over our differences. Let's find out by reading Romans 14, 
1 to 12. Again, it's on page 892 in your pew Bible. This is the word of the Lord. As for one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Wow. Timely text. If you're like me, simply reading this text, if there were no further comment should convict us over the way we have at times treated our brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of you have come to church this very morning sad, mad, upset, or out of sorts because of a fractured relationship with another believer in your church family. Some of you consider the perspectives of other church members and wonder how they can even call themselves Christians, not because they disbelieve the gospel, but because they hold different views than you do on certain matters that are not explicitly spelled out in Scripture. In this section, Paul addresses those who are weak in faith, and we'll come to a a little better understanding of what that means, and those who are strong Uh, Chapter 15, he addresses them as strong in faith. And in this setting, both groups were criticizing and condemning each other and thereby crippling their unity in Christ. Earlier this week, I received an email from one of our godly older members who was reading and meditating on this passage, and he wrote to me in part, When reading the text, I believe there is a temptation for the reader to position themselves as the person who is not weak in faith. And although a person may intellectually comprehend the message, one's heart is more reluctant to understand, saying, in essence, well, I'm the more spiritually mature one, therefore I can judge. (laughs) But Paul would persuade us otherwise. He calls us instead to humility, every one of us and to mutual forbearance. 
One commentator writes, and is correct in saying, orthodoxy is not enough in the Christian life. Having the right theology does not fulfill the law, as Paul has just said in Romans 13, 8-10. Love fulfills the law. And as we studied that, we saw that love is the core of the Christian life. Yes, it is based on proper theology, but proper theology is not in an end itself. Uh, We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second command, which is like it, it extends from it, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. All the practical commands in Romans that we have seen, and we've talked about this, are rooted in and are a response to God's redeeming love for us. That is the basis on which we get along with other believers. The main point is, since God welcomes us, we should welcome one another. Since God welcomes us, we should welcome one another. So to help us apply this precept, Paul first of all, points out the problem. Then he gives the prescription, that is the remedial action that needs to be taken to resolve the problem. And then he gives us four principles on which that remedial action is based. So let's look first of all at the problem. By the way, before we get into this, let me just say, I have to go to a dermatologist once every few months because I have Uh, skin cancer that crops up. And so I can't let it go. I got to go in there. And inevitably, almost every appointment, I get have to get shots. Oh, we got a spot here. We need to take a biopsy or we need to excise this. And he'll go to give me a shot to kind of deaden that. And then he'll say, you know, he, he says the same thing every time. First a pinch, then a sting, a burn, but then it'll be better after that. And so he'll do that, and it's true. While more extensive work needs to be done, he hasn't even dug into me yet. If I can endure that initial uh, sting, that pinch, that burn, everything else will go fine. And so I want to encourage you that if, if merely reading this passage, you felt a little sting, a little burn, conviction, maybe even certain people came to mind with whom you disagree, if you will not harden your heart but will simply absorb the sting of scripture, you will be well prepared throughout the rest of this message to receive the necessary surgery that you need spiritually to heal those broken relationships in your life. So let's look first of all at the problem. The problem is addressed, um, and I'm going to be skipping around here a little bit, uh, in verses 2 and in the first part of verse 5. Uh, Paul says in verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. And then down in verse 5, he says one person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. So what was the situation going on in here? Well, we know that the church in Rome consisted of both Jews and Gentiles. Some Jews were still sensitive to the old covenant dietary laws, uh, the observance of special days such as maybe the Sabbath or maybe certain festivals, uh, the holy days on the Jewish calendar. Um, They were practicing vegetarians. And even though the Old Testament did not require that one be a vegetarian, there were certain Old Testament saints that ate only vegetables. Daniel would be a good example of that. And, and we can probably understand that some of these Jews 
um, wanted to eat only vegetables so as to avoid uh, eating meat that may not have been prepared in a kosher manner. Uh, they would call it unclean meat. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about meat that had been sacrificed to idols, and there seemed to be a similar dilemma going on in Corinth uh, over these kinds of issues. But all that to say that um, even though these Jewish Christians had come to Christ, they were not relying upon uh, these Old Testament um, observances of days and diets to merit favor with God. They simply had a hard time kind of letting go of their past. Um, and Paul does refer to them as weak in faith. They, they just had a hard time, their conscience, releasing them from those things. So they trusted in Christ alone for salvation, but maybe they thought it would just be better for them spiritually if they observed those days, if they kept adhering to a certain diet. That was the conviction that they had. This would have been true also of some Gentiles who were Jewish proselytes, you know, proselytes of Judaism before they had come to Christ. And they, like their fellow Jews, sometimes had a hard time leaving those uh, observances that were under the old covenant. Um, but then, that was not the case with Gentiles who did not have any kind of a background in Judaism. They might have come from a pagan background, and they had no desire to observe the Jewish calendar or the Jewish dietary regulations. Uh, they were completely content, full in Christ, and felt no need whatsoever to practice any of those things. Even Jews like Paul, who fastidiously had kept the Old Testament dietary laws and customs and the festivals and all that, once he came to Christ, he felt no need to continue those things. Sometimes he did when, when he was with the Jews so that he would become all things to all people that he might by all means win some. But Paul felt no compulsion in himself to observe any of those things any longer once he came to know Christ because he knew that Christ is the fulfillment of the law, that all of these Old Testament days and observances and rituals and festivals all pointed to the Messiah, the one who was to come. And so they were all fulfilled in Christ. So now that he had faith in Christ, um, he, like other faithful Jews, believed that Christ is the fulfillment of the law and that we are saved not by works, but by faith in Christ. And so some Jews that had even kept uh, it very strictly were completely free to abandon that former way of life now that they had come to know Christ. In fact, Paul says in Philippians 3 that his former religious life he counted as rubbish compared to the worth of knowing Christ as his Lord and Savior. So there were these two groups. Some had a hard time leaving their past, trusted Christ alone for salvation, but were just more scrupulous, as it were, when it came to observing certain days and diets. And then you had others that were completely free, had no concern at all to observe those kind of things. Two groups in the church, and, and both Jews and Gentiles, a mixture of, on either side. But that wasn't the primary problem, because both groups had trusted in Christ alone for salvation. The real problem was their attitude toward one another, the way that they were treating one another. And those who were strong in faith, we might call them the meat eaters, looked down on those who were more scrupulous and ate only vegetables. Instead of feeling compassion for them and receiving them into their circle of friends, they treated them with contempt. They looked down on them. They argued with them for being so legalistic and narrow-minded, being such prudes. On the other hand, the weak in faith, 
those believers whose consciences compelled them to still observe certain days and dietary regulations, even though they trusted the Lord alone for salvation, they thought they were just helped spiritually by this, that this would make me a better Christian. This is really the right thing to do if we really want to honor the Lord. Well, they judged those who didn't march to the beat of their drum. They reminded me of that little lingo I heard years ago, feel as I feel, think only as I think eat what I eat, drink what I drink, look as I look, do as I always do, then and only then will I fellowship with you. But there are Christians that still divide today over disputable matters. Now, there might be some Christians that are vegetarians, and that is a spiritual conviction for them or whatever, but I would say that they are in the extreme minority. What are the disputable matters that we might divide over today? Well, there might be some that immediately come to mind. These are issues on which the Bible does not give a clear directive, um, explicit instructions about what we are to do or the view we're to have. There are certain principles, precepts, commands that might inform our understanding that lead us to a certain conclusion, but the issue itself, there's no clear directive in Scripture on exactly what we should do. Such matters are ones of conscience and Christian freedom. This might include the consumption of alcohol. Which version of the Bible to use or which is best? Views on gun control. We've heard a lot about that the last few weeks. Getting vaccinated. That was a huge issue throughout the pandemic. What's the right kind of schooling for our children? Homeschool, Christian school, vocational school? What's the best way to deal with racial injustice? What kind of music is acceptable and God-honoring for Christians to listen to? You might be able to think of some more issues that might fall under that category of disputable matters. Maybe you're already saying, that's not a disputable matter. Scripture says this. And we can have a conversation later about that. The problem is, is that while there are certain precepts and principles that inform our understanding about these issues, and that's a good thing, and we might come to a firm conviction, which we'll see is also a good thing. They do fall into the category of disputable matters. Those who are weak in faith are those who do not think that their faith allows them to do certain things that the strong feel is okay to do. As Colin Smith points out, and I quote, a weak conscience is more comfortable with rules than freedom. The person with a weak conscience wants clarity about exactly what should be done in any given situation. Rules provide security for the weak conscience, end quote. And we just feel more comfortable. It could be a nervous disposition. It could be the way we were raised. But we just feel more comfortable with everything being black and white, even the gray areas. Do something, just make it black and white so I know what I need to do. And we feel most secure and comfortable with that. And it bothers us when others are more loosey-goosey about these matters that mean so much to us. The strong, on the other hand, are confident and the freedom they have in Christ, they know that observing certain days and diets and other things doesn't make someone a better Christian than one who doesn't observe them. 
And sometimes, depending on what the issue is, we can fall on more of the weak side or the strong side. Uh, we can kind of be a mix of both at times, depending on your perspective. But the problem isn't a difference in perspective, opinion, or conviction. That's really not the problem, according to Paul. The problem is the lack of peace and harmony between believers among God's people. And Paul here is essentially saying that the unity of the church is more important than petty arguments. The unity of the church is far more important than petty arguments between believers. My question is, do you believe that? Do you really believe that and would your actions show it? I hope so. If you seem to be at odds or at a standstill with other believers regarding disputable matters and you're wondering what to do, then keep listening. Because after identifying the problem, Paul issues the prescription. Now the easy solution to this problem, as one person put it, would simply be to split the church and have two separate congregations. The meat-eater church and the vegetarian church. I can guarantee you which one I would belong to. <laughs> but Paul chooses a better path. He says, look, this is not the easier path. It's the more difficult path, but it is the better path because it leads to Christian unity. To the strong, he says, number one, welcome your weaker brother. Welcome your weaker brother. Verse one, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. The word welcome there in the Greek proslambano means to receive kindly or hospitably. Admit to one's society and friendship. Treat with kindness. So it's not merely a matter of putting up with them, of grudgingly tolerating their presence in the Christian fellowship when you come to church. But about, it's about receiving them into your circle, your social circle, your circle of friends. It's actually about inviting them into your home, not to quarrel about your opinion versus there, but simply to show them the kindness and love of Jesus Christ. The second prescription given to the strong is this is the negative do not despise him do not despise him to despise means to treat with contempt or scorn the greek term is a very strong one it carries the idea of looking on someone as totally worthless you have such disdain for them such contempt for their views, and that they could be so mere-minded. It's like, you are nothing to me. In some circles, the word could actually mean you are less than nothing. It's the very opposite of what it means to welcome someone. Kent Hughes correctly states, quote, the human tendency is always to despise whatever or whoever we consider weak. The boy who can run faster, jump higher, or lift more despises the one who cannot, looks down on him. To despise the Christian who has a narrower to despise the Christian who has a narrower morality 
as a mental midget or a cultural dinosaur, well, such an attitude is not Christian, end quote. We're going to look in the next couple of weeks at Romans 15. Just look quickly at verses 1 and 2 where Paul reinforces this idea. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. See how these verses tie in to what Paul has been emphasizing in Romans 13 about loving our neighbor, doing what's in his best interest, doing what we can to build him up? You know, it's interesting too, Paul says, we who are strong. So, so Paul identifies theologically with the strong, but he is confronting them because of their lack of concern and compassion for those that are weak, those who just have a more prohibitive conscience, if you will, about certain issues. They're not to be treated with contempt. They're to be cared for. And that's his primary concern. How do we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ who have an honest disagreement with us about certain things? Well, that's his word to the strong. To the weak, he gives really just one prescription, but he emphasizes it three times, and that's stop passing judgment. Stop passing judgment. This is the main admonition to those whose consciences forbid them from doing certain things that are not expressly forbidden in Scripture or to do certain things that are not explicitly commanded in Scripture. Such Christians can be judgmental toward others that don't share the same convictions. This is their number one tendency. And so Paul addresses it. In addressing these believers, Paul issues a command that is reinforced with two questions. The command appears in verse 3. He says, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Then the first question in verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Then verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? The implication is very clear, isn't it? As one author from a previous generation put it, should a man not lay his hand upon his mouth before he criticizes his brethren? When we pass swift, uninformed, unloving, and ungenerous judgments, surely we have forgotten that if we speak evil of them, at the same time we speak evil of the Lord whose name they bear. Do we think about this? when we're quick to criticize and condemn those who disagree with us on disputable matters? Paul's prescription to the strong and to the weak, the remedial actions they, they must take to restore and promote Christian unity is grounded in, it's backed by four biblical principles. And that's what I want to look in this final part of the sermon. Four key principles that should compel us as God's people to pursue Christian unity. Principle number one, God welcomes all believers. And I really kind of put this as the, the transformative truth of the passage because this is kind of the dominant principle out of which everything else flows. God welcomes all believers. Look at Romans 14.3. 
Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why? For God has welcomed him. Now think about it. Because of our sin, God had every reason to reject us. And yet in Christ, he welcomes us. Do you remember what we sang moments ago? Thou hast promised to receive us, poor and sinful though we be. Thou hast mercy to relieve us, grace to cleanse, and power to free. Don't we serve an awesome God? That despite how poor and pathetic and sinful we are, He receives us. And God not only receives us, He rolls out the red carpet for us. Brothers and sisters, that carpet is red for it is stained with the blood of Jesus Christ, his son. Remember what Paul said back in Romans 5, 8, that God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who are we to reject whom God has received? Principle number two, the Lord upholds every believer. God welcomes all believers. But secondly, the Lord upholds every believer. Verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen? Psalm 3.8, Jonah 2.9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Philippians 1.6 says that God will complete the good work that he has started in every believer. Jesus concludes his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 with these words. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall. Same word is in here in Romans 14. But it did not fall, pipto, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell. And great was the fall of it talking about condemnation. The point is only those who have built their lives on the Word of God, the Gospel, will be standing after the storm of God's judgment. A judgment that will rage against all humanity and the only ones that will be left standing before God's holy presence forever and ever are those who have trusted in Christ. Those who have built their lives on the rock. The Word of God calls us to repent of our sin, to repent of our self-righteousness, to reject our own so-called righteous deeds as the means by which we get to heaven, and instead to rest fully on God's grace as it has been freely given to us in Christ, who lived, died, and rose as our substitute. So now is a good question to ask. 
just everyone that's here, on what foundation are you building your life? If you were to die today, and at the gate of heaven you were to be asked by the Lord, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? If your answer starts with I, then you're off on a wrong foot. It's you. You saved me by your grace. You loved me even though I'd sinned against you. You sent your only beloved son to be a sacrifice on my behalf so that I could be forgiven and be reconciled to you. And because you sent Jesus to save me, by your grace I can enter your heaven. You say that, and you mean it from the heart, and God knows from your life that this was true of you, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Only those who build their lives on Jesus will be able to stand on the day of judgment. And why is that? For the Lord is able to make them stand. And that leads to the third principle. The Lord is sovereign over every believer. God welcomes all believers. The Lord sustains or upholds every believer. And thirdly, the Lord is sovereign over every believer. Verses 5 to 9 of Romans 14. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For whether we live or whether we die, we live to the Lord. And whether, I'm sorry. Uh, for if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, that is the telos, the goal, for which Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. If one thing is clear in this passage, and I think it's critical for us to remember this, especially those of you who enjoy your freedom in Christ and would consider yourself strong in faith. Remember this, motives matter. Motives matter. Paul's repetitious use of a certain phrase is obscured a bit by the word honor in verse 6, which appears three times, at least in the English Standard Version. But the word honor does not appear in the original text. It was actually inserted by translators to give us the sense of what Paul is saying. And the translators are correct in understanding Paul's meaning. It's not wrong to insert the word honor there. But it does obscure a bit Paul's repetitious use of a certain phrase that if we just let it stand alone, it becomes all the more obvious what he is emphasizing. Listen to the repetitious use of the phrase without the word honor. The one who observes the day observes it for the Lord. The one who eats, eats for the Lord. The one who abstains, abstains for the Lord. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. You see how he's emphasizing the centrality and the supremacy of the Lord here. 
And no matter what convictions or perspectives or opinions that the weak have or the strong have, the one thing that's true of every believer in this situation is that they do what they do, they believe what they believe to the glory of God. They do it because they want to please God. They're not out to please themselves or they shouldn't be. Paul is assuming something very gracious here. Paul is assuming that the strong has the opinions and the perspectives and the convictions they do or the freedom they do or the opinions and perspectives that no matter, even though they disagree on what to do or what not to do in a given circumstance uh, regarding things that are not explicitly addressed in Scripture, Paul is assuming that all people on both sides have one motive in mind and that is to honor the Lord. Can we say that? about our convictions, our preferences, especially if you consider yourself strong in faith. I enjoy my freedom in Christ. Do you use your freedom to please yourself or to build up others? To please yourself or to please the Lord? I don't want to overly chide the strong here, but I'm just saying that our motives matter. And one thing I think that is crystal clear in this passage that we must not minimize is that the people Paul is addressing, all of them on both sides, have a sincere desire to do what they do or don't do to the Lord, to please Him, to honor Him. Motives matter. Now Paul isn't saying that a person's view does not matter. Disputable matters can be fairly significant matters in terms of how they play out in the church or in our life, in our family, in our society. In fact, he says that each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Don't have the mentality, well, it doesn't matter what I do. No, Paul doesn't say that. He actually says, be fully convinced in your own mind. What does that mean? Well, he's saying, essentially, if you take the collective counsel of Scripture, that it search the Scriptures about these things. Even though the matter itself may not be explicitly addressed in Scripture, what principles in Scripture weigh in on this issue? What commands are there? Uh, what accounts in uh, Bible history might come into play as an example for us? And, and just kind of take the whole counsel of God's Word, and, and where does the whole weight of Scripture seem to fall on this issue? Search the Scriptures. Uh, pray to God that His Holy Spirit would grant you wisdom and discernment in this matter. Uh, talk to other Christians that are further down the line than you are spiritually, people that are more mature in the Lord who seem to have a deeper understanding of God's Word. That shows humility on your part, a desire for, uh, to learn. It, it displays a teachable spirit. And after you've studied the Scriptures, you've prayed, you've sought the collective counsel of other godly Christians then come to a firm conviction on the matter and follow your conscience. But don't look down on or criticize or condemn those who land or lean differently than where you do. In his comments on these verses, I think John MacArthur offers some very helpful practical counsel and he's worth quoting at length. He says, quote, In matters that are not specifically commanded or forbidden in Scripture, it is always wrong to go against conscience because our conscience represents what we actually believe to be right. 
To go against our conscience, therefore, is to do that which we believe is wrong. And although an act or a practice in itself may not be sinful, it is treated as sinful for those who are convinced in their own minds that it is wrong and produces guilt. It is also sinful, however, to try to impose our own personal convictions on others because in doing so, we are tempting them to go against their conscience. Paul is therefore giving a twofold command. Do not compromise your own conscience in order to conform to the conscience of another believer and do not attempt to lead another believer to compromise his conscience in order to conform to yours. So he's not saying that you can't have a helpful conversation about these things. But once you're fully convinced in your own mind, you must follow your conscience because not to do that is sin. Every believer belongs to the Lord. Every believer answers to the Lord. Every believer was purchased with the precious blood of Christ. Therefore, MacArthur correctly states, again, quote, to deny the lordship of Jesus Christ in the life of any believer is to subvert the full work, power, and purpose of his crucifixion and resurrection, end quote. And this leads us to the fourth principle that should compel all of us to pursue Christian unity. And that is, the Lord alone will judge every believer. The Lord alone will judge every believer. Verses 10 to 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? He's addressing both sides here. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written... This is from Isaiah 45. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So we don't want to be judging others because then God will judge us for being judgmental. It's vital to remember at this point that Paul is not prohibiting all kinds of judgment. Not a long shot. You read throughout the New Testament the words of Jesus himself. That is not the case at all. Let me explain. In several New Testament passages, believers are called, are commanded to judge the actions of one another. That is to say that if people are violating something that is clearly taught in the word of God, it's not a gray area, it is black and white and they're sinning against the Lord, and they're persisting in that sin, we have a responsibility not to tolerate them, but to confront them. To do it gently and in love, but to confront. We are judging their actions to be inconsistent with the express will of God as revealed in His Word. The Bible makes it clear that Christians are to hold one another accountable for their actions, But we are to never judge another one's position before God. That is, uh, we don't decide by our judgment who stands or falls on the day of judgment. We don't decide who is saved and who is condemned. We, We don't know people's hearts. We can only judge their actions, but we are called to judge their actions. And that's why Jesus commands us to practice church discipline. God is the ultimate judge. We are not. When it comes to disputable matters, though, those areas that are talked about here in this passage and other places, 
those gray areas that are not explicitly addressed in Scripture, we are to accept everyone, every believer, even though we will not agree on everything. That's a good way to remember it. Accept everyone, even though you will not always agree on everything. We'll delve further in the subject next week as we continue our study of Romans 14, and this actually carries on to Romans 15. Again, Paul's shifting directions a little here and there, but it all kind of ties into the same principle that since God welcomes us, we should welcome one another. And what a great text such as this to prepare our hearts even as we come to the Lord's table as one body in Christ. Dan Doriani correctly states, and I'll close with this quote, how we treat one another when we disagree is a gospel issue. Since God welcomes sinners and mediocre theologians by grace, we show that we love the gospel and that we follow Jesus when we accept one another. End quote. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to the table of communion, as we focus our attention on Jesus' sacrifice for us, the one who went through the ultimate pain to do us the ultimate good, I pray, Lord, that we would not only admire Jesus' love for us, but that we would also seek to model that love to one another in our attitudes, in our actions, and in our treatment toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.